This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. In less than a month, you'll be able to take a train between Denver Union Station and the airport. The April 22nd opening of the A-Line is a key step toward creating an aerotropolis, a new cluster of development with the airport at its heart. Another component is under construction just off the rail line, about 12 miles from the airport. It's called Panasonic City Now. Vice President Jared Wendt says one of Panasonic's division headquarters will be here, along with housing, shops, and other office space. City Now is based on a similar development in Japan, which features Panasonic technology. Think smart street lamps and other energy-saving measures. We want to develop a you know, living, breathing aerotropolis. We're buying in. And there's that term again, aerotropolis. Let's talk to the man who popularized it and whose book inspired Denver's mayor to embrace the concept here. John Casarda is co-author of Aerotropolis, The Way We'll Live Next. He directs the Center for Air Commerce at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and he explained the concept. We're developing a second city center around uh, major airports. And uh, I would say that Denver downtown will be losing any impact. Uh, in fact, the second city center will be forming that will reinforce the downtown, particularly with fast rail. Sociologists and urban planners and designers have studied this process. And uh, we've come up with a uh, model that goes something like this. The airport leaves the city. The city follows the airport. The airport becomes a city. And an aerotropolis grows around that airport city. But you say that it it is not to the detriment of the downtown, the original downtown. No. It reinforces the downtown. Uh, Boeing is a very good example. When it uh, moved from Seattle, its headquarters from Seattle to Chicago, it didn't locate out near O'Hare Airport where the major uh, airline uh, headquarters were located, but it located in downtown Loop. And so it's Chicago headquartered Boeing right in the Loop uh, that was brought to you by O'Hare Airport and the surrounding areas. How many of these aero, gosh, what's the plural, aerotropolises, aerotropoli, uh, how how many of them Uh, around the world today? There's approximately 80 that are actually in the development phase, uh, many more in the planning phase. If you include China, there are 60 uh, airports and airport areas that are implementing uh, this model. They are the most enthusiastic adapter of the uh, Aerotropolis model, and some that I'm working with uh, are just of, of absolutely immense scale. The Aerotropolis in Shenzhou, China, and this uh, Aerotropolis covers 415 square kilometers, you know, nearly uh, 250 square miles. And it is uh, bringing together all forms of uh, transit, including high-speed rail. Uh, It's attracted uh, 60 billion U.S. dollars worth of investment and uh, generates a tremendous amount of economic activity for the uh, Zhenzhou region. Now, the similarity between what you described in China and Denver to me is the vast land that some of these aerotropolises will take up. And boy, the potential is there certainly for DIA with, gosh, I think the, the landmass larger than Manhattan around the airport. That's true. And, uh, you know, DIA is blessed. This has been a slow process. Uh, the idea of the Aerotropolis uh, in Denver is not new. I remember uh, working, you know, 15 years ago with some of the people that had a planning commission it was made up of cities and counties uh, in the Denver International Airport area. And they did a play on it and they called it Aeropolitan, uh, Denver Aeropolitan. And the expectations that an Aerotropolis would develop appear to be being met, but it, honestly, it's been a slower process in Denver than many of us thought back 10 or 15 years ago. How important is the opening of the A-line between Denver's Union Station and DIA 
to the promise in your eyes of an aerotropolis? Well, I think it's very important because the aerotropolis is not just about highways and and air, but also about efficient connectivity uh, by rail to the downtown. The concern that I have is that there not be so many stops along the way that it's uh, more efficient uh, for people just to hop in a cab, that they will uh, use that uh, railway to go to Union Station and other transit-oriented stops along uh, the way. People don't like to wait more than 20 minutes. RTD says a trip from Union Station to DIA on the A-Line will take 37 minutes. Uh, Trains will be running every 15 minutes during peak hours. Uh, What about the cost of the ticket, too? You know, it occurs to me that that's going to be a part of the determination, isn't it? It will be part of the termination, and uh, you've got to remember that it's the total cost of the transit that's important. So if somebody is going to Union Station but their businesses are a mile or two away, they're going to have to take a taxi cab to that location. So all these uh, feed into the cost of uh, transit from the airport to the ultimate destination. And at cprnews.org, we'll post uh, a fee schedule so you can see what it will cost to get to DIA on the A-Line train. Is this all just fancy terminology for sprawl? Uh, No, because the Aerotropolis model actually counters sprawl. Without employing Aerotropolis principles, which combine airport planning, urban and regional planning, uh, and business site planning, what you get is spontaneous haphazard development that is usually not as efficient as it could be, often unsightly and ultimately unsustainable. Uh, The Aerotropolis model actually redensifies property at and around the airport and at the key transit-oriented development. So uh, it is actually an antidote to sprawl. I do think, though, that on I-70 in particular, um, which is already a really heavily traveled road and, you know, often very trafficy, um, that there's the potential for it to become an even bigger headache. Because though there is soon train service connecting the airport and the traditional city center, gosh, won't won't that thoroughfare be even more heavily traveled? And, and has that been borne out in other aerotropolis cities. Yes, it has. And in fact, the primary spine for aerotropolis development is the highway between the airport and the downtown. And this is why development along that uh, major aerotropolis corridor needs to be planned and controlled so that it is intelligent development. It forms and grows uh, in a manner that is attractive, economically efficient, and sustainable. Is that something of a, of a warning, of a caveat to city planners here about how this kind of planning occurs? occurs and what the the reliance will be on I-70. Oh, yes, absolutely. Because first of all, the airport itself is the calling card and handshake for out-of-city and foreign uh, travelers. It's the first and last thing that they see. But what is also the first and last thing they see that gives them the impression of the city and the metropolitan area is that trip from the airport to the downtown. And if it is pleasant and attractive, I'll use Singapore as an example, from Singapore Changi Airport to uh, uh, the downtown, people often fall in love with the city before they even get there. But if it's congested, polluted, uh, unsightly, and other difficulties, uh, noisy, then it affects the impression that people have of the metropolitan area and the downtown because it is that first image that they have of the city. Denver certainly is focusing on the corridor, uh, though exactly what to do with it is a, a controversial question for many, especially when it comes to I-70. I want to ask about housing in the Aerotropolis. So, um, John, I have always thought of people who don't want to live near an airport because of the of the noise. 
and yet isn't critical to your vision of an aerotropolis that people desire to live near the airport. Well, yes, they desire to live near their port, and they do. Uh, in fact, the wealthiest uh, community in the U.S., according to Ford's magazine, is South Lake, Texas, which is just 300 yards from one of the runways of Dallas-Fort Worth. The fact of the matter is that airports have become uh, magnets for residential development. Uh, you can see this around a number of the major airports in the U.S. today, and you can see it actually around uh, Denver International Airport. So, again, it depends on where you put the housing. Obviously, if it's uh, right in the high north contours, the flight paths, that's not good. And people will not like it and, and likely complain. I spoke a while back with Kim Day, uh, the, the leader of the airport, and she envisions people coming to the airport, potentially on the train, who are not traveling and who are not picking up family members. That is to say, she envisions that the airport could be a destination to itself, uh, even if you had no connection to travel. Is that borne out anywhere? Oh, absolutely. Uh, It's borne out that uh, uh, airports are becoming destinations for shopping, for entertainment, for meeting, for a range of functions. So uh, if you look at Amsterdam Schiphol Airport, it's airport city, which is uh, one of the oldest and most established uh, airport city. Uh, Many people travel from the downtown to the airport to shop, to eat, to uh, go to the museums uh, that are there, to actually even conduct business meetings with individuals that fly in and they they have their meeting with them and then take the train back to the downtown Amsterdam. Central. So uh, that's one example, but others are Frankfurt. People come out to work and shop, but uh, never get on an aircraft. I want to quote to you a 2011 review of your of your book, Aerotropolis, from The Guardian, which found that your book dismisses, quote, the idea that air travel should be curtailed due to concerns about greenhouse gas emissions and climate change as fatal for economic growth. Uh, Aren't you essentially envisioning cities built around fuel-hungry jets? Is that that sustainable? Or will we look at the aerotropolis in, I don't know, 50 years and say, my, that was irresponsible development? Well, first, let's get the facts out. Airlines, aviation is... uh uh, accountable only for 2% of the carbon emissions and greenhouse gases. It's a very tiny percent. Transportation in general, which uh, is really the whipping boy of many people that are concerned, contributes about 14 or 15% to the greenhouse gases. Uh, many other forms, primarily industrial, even animal grazing, uh, is a uh, major contributor. Now, uh, what is going on is the industry is aware of this. They're aware of global warming, of, of carbon emissions, greenhouse gases. And so they're working diligently to have more fuel-efficient engines uh, with lower uh, emissions, lighter aircraft, uh, stronger composites. Uh, I've always said just, just as the, the Stone Age didn't end because we ran out of stones, the fossil fuel age will not end because we run out of fossil fuels. New technologies and innovations will likely emerge that come up with alternatives uh, to fossil fuels fuels uh, before they are depleted. What are the possible pitfalls Denver could face as it develops its aerotropolis, John? 
not really planning it uh, properly and having people that come just in and provide pretty pictures of various types of transit-oriented development uh, that are more dreams than realities, uh, where there is not a real investment-grade analysis. Has the proper demand analysis been done for the developments that are proposed so that the, the businesses will invest uh, in them and that clients and customers will utilize them? This requires business models, not architects that design pretty clusters of development. Is there an example of an aerotropolis that went down the wrong path? Well, I wouldn't say uh, going down the wrong path. It, they just really didn't plan it uh, appropriately. And so you end up seeing uh, a fair amount of sprawl. And we're not far enough down the road to really see if there are disasters. But we can say much of the development we've seen around major airports to date has been spontaneous, haphazard, uh, and it's unsightly and it actually has contributed to the bad reputation that airport and airport areas have. So uh, the main point is that without the aerotropolis, without uh, getting it right with proper planning that brings together airport planning, urban regional planning, and business site planning, you will have the mess that we see around many major airports today. An aerotropolis is going to form around Denver International Airport, but will it form in an intelligent manner. And that is why aerotropolis planning is so important, including the redensification that I mentioned before to counter sprawl. Thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. John Casarda is co-author of Aerotropolis, The Way We'll Live Next. He's also director of the Center for Air Commerce at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. The A-line between Denver Union Station and DIA begins service April 22nd. And we'll be right back with a history of the wedgiest of wedge issues at the state capitol this year. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from Colorado Public Radio. I'm Ryan Warner. The three most used words at the state capitol this year might just be hospital provider fee. Oh, that just didn't have the right heft to it. Let's try that again. The hospital provider fee. Yes, it's the subject of a big fight among lawmakers and the governor, who say it's either a partial savior for schools and roads or a costly government overreach. It depends on whom you ask. The seeds of this fight were planted years ago, and CPR's Rachel Estabrook has been investigating. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Ryan. When did the hospital provider fee become a thing? So this started in 2009. Lawmakers approved it, and the state started collecting the fee from hospitals based on how many patients they see. Democrat Bill Ritter was governor then, and in a phone interview the other day, he told me that many Coloradans at the time lacked health insurance. Remember, this was before Obamacare, and the state wanted to give them an option. Their income level was such that they really weren't able to afford any kind of health insurance, and yet they also were not covered by Medicaid. And so it was about expanding to pick up coverage both for people with kids, but also people who had really low incomes and no health care. And why was the fee the answer? Well, Ritter and his supporters saw it as a way to expand the, bro- the program, Medicaid, without taking money from other things in Colorado. And that was possible because the federal government offered matching money to states that collect these fees. The federal money gets passed on to hospitals who see Medicaid patients. So, yeah, the hospitals were paying a fee but benefiting from it in return. Several other states had already assessed similar fees and more have since Colorado did. Hmm. 
And in addition to helping more people get health insurance, the fee solved a problem for hospitals. They'd seen a lot of patients who couldn't pay for their treatment or who were on Medicaid, which didn't reimburse the full cost of treatment. And this is all according to Stephen Summer, who was and still is the head of the Colorado Hospital Association. Summer told me the costs of treating those patients were passed on to other patients who had private insurance. So this matters to you, too, because if you, Ryan Warner, had health insurance through your employer at the time and went to the hospital, you paid for your own procedure and also part of the treatment for somebody else. Uh. So Republicans have argued over the years that hospitals still pass on a little slice of the fee we've been talking about to patients in their hospital bills. But it's really hard to prove because the legislation that created the fee expressly forbids a line item on a patient's bill. So the hospital provider fee was designed to alleviate what is often referred to as the cost cost shift, which you described. What, What kind of opposition was there back in 2009 as you dug into this? There was some, for sure, mostly among Republicans. One person who voted against it was Ellen Roberts. She was then a state representative and is now a state senator from Durango. One of her concerns, and she was not alone, was that while Colorado didn't have to take money from its own pockets to do this, taking it from the feds wasn't much better. The argument that I heard from my some of my colleagues who supported it was that it was free money, that if Colorado didn't take advantage of this free money from the federal government, we would be making a mistake. And it always struck me as odd that we would ever consider money from Washington, D.C. as free money because it's all taxpayer money. Ultimately, Roberts lost out, and the Colorado Health Care Affordability Act, which created the hospital provider fee, passed with mostly Democratic lawmakers voting for it, though a few Republicans supported it as well. And it was signed by Governor Ritter. So in the seven years since, has it allowed more people to get health insurance? Yes. The state was able to expand Medicaid and the Children's Health Insurance Program. And remember, this was before the Affordable Care Act passed. So proponents at the time said 100,000 people would get insurance who didn't previously have it. It's hard to say how many actually have because the ACA, Obamacare, expanded Medicaid eligibility even further, as you know. Before it did, we can say that at least 23,000 people got health insurance because of this change, according to the state. And in all, they say more than 400,000 people have gotten insurance, both thanks to the hospital provider fee and Obamacare. But there's some concern about that. Yeah, this opens up a debate about whether putting that many new people on Medicaid is a good thing. And I'm not going to get into that now, but our colleague, health reporter John Daly, has explored this question. And I'll have links to his stories at CPRnews.org. For her part, Senator Ellen Roberts says that while more people have health insurance, they may not be getting health care. Right around the time that we put the hospital fee in place, we were still acknowledging that we didn't have enough healthcare workers to provide this kind of care. If you don't have the people to provide that health care, all you've done is given people a card to put in their wallet. Supporters say the fee has had other benefits, like reducing the number of patients hospitals see who can't pay anything and increasing payments for treating Medicaid patients. And remember, they argue that those benefit everyone who uses health care. Now, the current debate over this hospital provider fee was started by Governor John Hickenlooper last year. He wants to reclassify the fee under state law, an accounting change, he says, uh, to make it harder to trigger rebates to Coloradans under the Taxpayer Bill of Rights, uh, which limits government growth. Right. And as you know, Democrats say the reclassification would free up money to spend on schools 
rails and roads, among other things. Opponents say such a maneuver would be unconstitutional and that it would grow government in violation of the Taxpayer Bill of Rights. Hickenlooper says this fee should never have been subject to Tabor in the first place. Uh, Is he right from your historical digging? Well, this is what I was really fascinated to learn. According to Governor Ritter, lawmakers could have decided back in 2009 to shield it from Tabor, but they didn't on purpose. There are a lot of people in the legislature willing to vote for the hospital provider fee bill, but worried about taking it out from underneath Tabor. If that was something that, you know, could be used as a political wedge against them in a future campaign, that they were somehow circumventing Tabor. And so uh, we passed the hospital provider fee, did not take it out from underneath Tabor as we could have because we didn't have the votes for that. Remember, in 2009, the recession was ongoing, and Governor Ritter said he didn't anticipate the state would reach its Tabor limit, triggering refunds, for a long time. It sounded like a far-off problem. And now that far-off day is here, at least in Democrats' minds. Uh, This week, the Speaker of the House, Democrat Dickie Lee Hullinghorst, introduced a bill to make the change Hickenlooper wants, which again would make it harder to trigger Tabor refunds in future years and uh, would likely free up money for schools and roads. Um, What can you say about this bill's chances? Ultimately, the odds are not great. Republicans who control the state Senate can prevent it from getting to a floor vote. So even though Democrats believe they have the votes, it it might not get that far. Mm. And so far, Republican leadership is totally against the bill. Some argue the fee was illegal from the beginning, that it was really a tax which should have required voter approval, again, under Tabor. Although a legal memo from Colorado's Legislative Legal Council back in 2008 said it was not a tax. I understand that the bill introduced Monday has a provision saying that if the federal government stopped reimbursing states for hospital fees, hospitals in Colorado wouldn't have to pay the fees anymore. Why is that important in this? This is another wrinkle of the whole thing. So when I talked to Senator Ellen Roberts, she explained that this was one more reason she opposed the hospital provider fee from the beginning. Because Congress could at any moment decide to end the matching program. Remember, this hospital provider fee operates on the idea that the cost falls mostly on the feds, not on hospitals. So hospitals in Colorado are saying, if we're not going to get federal payments anymore, we're no longer going to pay this fee, which allows the state to expand Medicaid. Senator Roberts worries the state could be left with a lot of new people on public insurance programs without a way to pay for them. And I think the fact that hospitals push to have this provision included in the new bill means the fears aren't totally far-fetched. There have been efforts to end the federal matching program. And just a few weeks ago, the Kaiser Family Foundation reported that Congress is currently considering proposals to change it. Ah, So the discussion going on at the state level and the federal, if Democrats, including the governor, can pull this off this year, and take the hospital provider fee out from under Tabor, what difference would it make in the state budget? Well, in future years, it could allow lawmakers to spend more money, more than $100 million even, on roads and schools and other priorities. But it would not immediately free up that money in the fiscal year that starts in July under the current budget proposal. Still, Governor Hickenlooper and Speaker of the House Hollinghorst are pushing hard for this change. Rachel, thanks so much for sharing this with us. My pleasure, Ryan. That's Rachel Estabrook, a managing producer and reporter at CPR News. (music) 
your comments poured in after my regular conversation with Governor John Hickenlooper. And let's hear some of those comments now in loud and clear, our feedback segment. Most commenters were unhappy to hear that the governor, who is a Democratic superdelegate, is firm in his support of Secretary Hillary Clinton for president, even though Senator Bernie Sanders handily won Colorado's caucuses. You know, the voters elected me to use my judgment to make decisions. I think it was accepted that, that our judgment might differ from the, uh, the voice of the, you know, the larger electorate. A classic example of government deciding what's best for the people, despite what the people believe or want, according to Michael Zukowski of Castle Rock, one of many who weighed in on the CPR News Facebook page. A number of listeners pointed out a contradiction between the governor's comments on being a superdelegate, where he says he was elected to exercise his judgment. So between that and an exchange we had over whether he'd support moving Guantanamo Bay detainees to Colorado. Certainly if the community feel strongly that they don't want those individuals anywhere near their community, then I would support 100%. And that's, I think, from what I've heard from Senator Gardner and Senator Bennett, that is what the sentiment is of those communities. Is it a sentiment, do you think, that is based on on realized or realizable fears that that could make Colorado something of a terrorist target? Or is that just not in my backyard? Oh, I'm sure it's, it's both. I don't see, from what I've been able to gather... You know, these people don't seem to be more of a threat than the people that we already have. But I think that that you have to recognize, you know, public sentiment matters. But others wrote in to say that when it comes to the Democratic presidential contest, it's hard to know what the will of the people really is because of the caucus system here. Time to get rid of caucuses that reflect the will of a very small group of people who are privileged enough to attend a caucus for several hours on a weeknight, wrote Marsha Kaufman of Denver. The issue is that the caucus system tends to leave out key demographics. Those who have small children are elderly, may work shifts, wrote Laura Nicholson of Boulder in an email to us. So perhaps the first question should be how representative was the vote before we start pressuring folks like Hickenlooper to change his. Next up, listener Gretchen Nikolov of Hotchkiss commented on our interview about labor activist Cesar Chavez, who fought for better working conditions in agriculture in the 1960s and 70s. Nikolov critiqued our pronunciation of Mr. Chavez's last name. We were saying Chavez. Gretchen, you're right. And here to back you up is spokesman at the Cesar Chavez Foundation, Mark Grossman. The correct pronunciation of his last name is Chavez. Finally, some feedback on my recent interview with State Representative Paul Rosenthal, a Denver Democrat. He's sponsoring a bill that would make it illegal for children to go through conversion therapy, which seeks to make them heterosexual. The practice is widely discredited. Daniel Gonzalez of Denver wrote that he went through ex-gay therapy when he was 18. He says, quote, As an architect, if I were designing buildings that were harming people, I would expect the state to take action against me and strip my license. It boggles the mind that licensed therapists are still allowed to harm gay youth in this way. And Stan Rolfing of Thornton wishes the bill would go farther. Quote, I'd like to see people forcing children into conversion therapy charged with child abuse. If you have a comment or question about our conversations, reach out on Twitter. We are at Colorado Matters. Again, on Facebook, we're CPR News. Or at our website, CPRnews.org, you can comment beneath articles or shoot us an email. We'll be right back. This is Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. Genetically modified crops will be gone from lands that Boulder County owns in the next three to seven years. 
Commissioners made that decision earlier this month. Now they'll have to work to find alternatives to the GMO sugar beets and corn that some farmers grow on county lands. This is a punctuation mark on a long debate. Reporter Luke Runyon has covered this for KUNC Public Radio and Harvest Public Media. That's a reporting collaboration focused on issues of food, fuel and field. And uh, Luke is with us from Greeley. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So every five years, Boulder County sets a policy for its cropland. Uh, Back in 2011, the commissioners voted unanimously to allow certain genetically modified crops on its public land. What has changed between then and now, Luke? Well, after the 2011 decision, GMOs really became a big campaign issue because an election was right around the corner and two of the sitting commissioners left their seats. So the two people who filled those seats campaigned on that issue. Both of them said that they would reverse the 2011 decision and allow GMOs on Boulder County-owned land. Uh, Flash forward to 2016 to today, and those two commissioners stuck to their word. That's exactly what happened. They went through a public process with public hearings. And while the commissioners didn't go as far as instituting a ban on GMOs right away, they gave instructions for county staff to draft a plan to transition the cropland away from GMOs over the next three to seven years, like you said. Yeah, this has been simmering then some time in Boulder County. Before we get any further, um, let's explain that Boulder County owns a lot of open space and it leases leases about 25,000 acres to farmers so that they can grow crops or raise livestock. Why does a county own so much public land? Well, in Boulder County, it's really about pushing back urban sprawl. So since the 1970s, the county has been really, really aggressive in its land acquisition. And that's really an effort to preserve rural and agricultural lands in a really desirable place to live. Um, So the county buys farms and then they lease that land back to farmers. Um, If you sum it all up, the county manages more than 100,000 acres of land, and that's pasture, forest trails, recreational areas, and uh, 25,000 acres that's devoted to agricultural use. There's another point I think worth clarifying here. What is a GMO crop? Is there a solid definition? That's a tricky question. I mean, you ask uh, 10 different people what they think a GMO is, and you're probably going to get 10 different answers. Um, It's a really loose term that I don't necessarily think encapsulates all of what we're talking about. Um, But the most common layman's understanding of a GMO is when we take genes from one species and then take those genes and put them in another species and create this new organism. Um, But there's lots of other gene editing techniques that create create new plant varieties without using DNA from separate species. And those technically aren't considered GMOs. So it's it's a pretty loose term with not, it's hard to pin down a definition. Okay. So Luke, you talked about how much public land there is in Boulder County. I'm interested in how much of that land is currently devoted to growing GMO crops. It's very little, actually. It's about 1%. And the only GMO crops that are allowed in Boulder County right now are sugar beets and corn. So that's about 1,000 acres. Okay. And how many farmers are responsible for those 1,000 acres? Nine. Nine farmers. So it's a pretty small constituency in Boulder County. Now, those two county commissioners in Boulder that you mentioned earlier who ran on this sort of anti-GMO platform, uh, they're Elise Jones and Deb Gardner. 
What arguments did they use to explain their opposition to GMOs? I think they were your pretty standard arguments in this world that cares so much about genetically engineered crops. Um, So you had Commissioner Elise Jones, and she's had this career in environmental conservation. And her argument was that these pesticides were used in conjunction with these crops and that the pesticides are polluting Boulder County open space land. Um, And I should mention that even farmers who grow non-GMO crops can still use pesticides. It's not one in the same. Um, And then from Commissioner Deb Gardner, you had this kind of values-based argument um, that GMOs, as she sees, they don't fit with Boulder County's values. You know, they're created in labs by these large agribusiness companies. Um, And she says we need to be supporting organic production more than conventional agriculture that's focused on commodity crops. But really throughout this entire process, the discussion was really polarized where you had farmers, conventional farmers on one side, and you had kind of urban dwellers on the other side. And these commissioners face a good amount of pressure from folks like Mary Smith. She's co-founder of an activist group called GM No. Uh, Here's how she says GMOs have changed agriculture. What was once a very proud industry and a very proud profession has been reduced to slavery. And that's what it truly is. That is, uh, slaves to companies that make GMO seeds, I think she's saying there. How do farmers who use those seeds respond to an accusation like that of of being slaves to uh, big companies? I mean, you heard those same sorts of sentiments at the public hearing that I attended that was about nine hours long of public testimony. Um, And a lot of the folks on the anti-GMO side have this... They're a little bit of accusatory, and I think some farmers would even say that they're condescending, um, and I think that, that that comment is a good example of that. I think not a lot of farmers would agree that they're enslaved to big multinational companies like Monsanto or Syngenta. And how do farmers respond to those kinds of concerns? Do they make, uh, I don't know, ecological arguments uh, on, on their side? Yeah, they they say, look, GMOs have helped us use less fuel because we're out in the fields less. We don't use as many chemicals. And it's also just a more profitable crop when they grow these GMO varieties. Mm. They spend more on the seeds, um, but they end up making that back in the amount of work they put into the whole process, the fewer inputs that they buy, and in the higher yields that they can pull out of the field by using those crops. Um, So they would say that they're doing more with less. Um, and, and granted, they aren't saying that GMOs are the end-all, be-all. This, these varieties just seem to work better than the others. And I talk to farmers all the time. They're pretty rational beings. So if they didn't see a return on these crops, they wouldn't grow them. No one's forcing them to grow them. Have you ever seen in any of these public hearings, Luke, someone change their mind or be swayed by the other side? No, okay. <laughs> uh, so, which which is a little disheartening. I mean, it, it it definitely became a really polarized debate. People were kind of talking past each other, um, which I don't think is very productive. And I, I didn't walk away thinking, oh, we've come to this great conclusion. It still felt very accusatory. 
You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with KUNC's Luke Runyon. He's also with Harvest Public Media about a years-long debate that has come to a head in Boulder over GMO crops. And Luke, it's interesting, you titled your article on this issue, What We Talk About When We Talk About GMOs. And a headline like that, I think, is a way to step back a bit from the debate, the disagreement, and frame the story differently. Why frame it that way? Yeah, I really tried to pull back and give this sort of 30,000-foot view of the whole thing. Um, When I was interviewing some of the anti-GMO folks, I tried to say, okay, I hear what you're saying. I hear these concerns that you have about those massive multinational corporations, about struggling organic farmers. But are you really getting at the list of concerns by banning sugar beets on Boulder County-owned land? Or is this more really of a symbolic gesture? Are you just making life a little bit harder for these nine farmers? Um, And a lot of them said it it is about this larger fight, these larger ideological and sometimes philosophical concerns that they have. Yeah, and this idea of symbolism was echoed by a former Boulder mayor and former county commissioner, that's Will Tour, who says GMOs really are a symbolic target. I do think it's it's become a, a symbolic debate rather than a debate based upon the actual crops themselves. And certainly there's concern about the crops themselves, but let's say that you are also concerned, as you mentioned, Luke, about the way agriculture works now. You know, maybe the use of pesticides or the consolidation of family farms or ecological problems that come with growing a single crop on a large plot of land. Are GMOs a good symbol for those concerns? I really don't think so. You know, GMO, like we were talking about, it's such a squicky definition and it's such a blanket term. Really what we're talking about is a plant breeding technique. So you could use that same technique to make a whole range of crops that really could either help or hurt agriculture. And you have to take the plants that are produced one variety at a time and assess one by one how they change an economy, how they help people or how they hurt people. It really doesn't make sense to me to let a process be a proxy for this huge set of political and economic worries that people have. Boulder also has a plan to make 20% of its publicly owned farmland organic by 2020. And organic crops can't be genetically modified. Uh, So could this plan to phase out GMO on public lands be a way to protect organic farmers from some competition? Yeah, and actually the the county's had some criticism that it hasn't done enough to prop up organic farmers. Um, This GMO decision might open up some of the lands, but a lot of those organic farmers have struggled to stay in business, and that's not really due to GMOs. That's more of an economic, a larger economic problem. Um, And I don't think GMOs put a huge amount of pressure on organic farmers. There There were even a couple organic farmers who got up and spoke at the public hearing, and they were saying, you know, leave our fellow farmers alone, essentially. Oh, interesting. Well, Jules Van Tyne is one farmer who grows GMO sugar beets and corn on Boulder County land, one of the nine, as you mentioned. Uh, Here's what he Mm -hmm. had to say about the county's decision. These aren't corporate farms. These are farm families that have been here for several generations that that their livelihood is very much affected by this decision. 
So will farmers like him be able to transition away from GMOs easily? I think we'll really have to wait and see. You know, the county has said that they're going to work with farmers like Jules Van Tyne to find alternatives that won't really impact their business that much. Um, But farming is a tough business. Uh, The plan to phase out GMOs is going to be coming back in front of the commissioners this summer. Uh, Right now, the commissioners are supposedly having meetings with these nine farmers Um, But the press release that the county commissioner's office sent out after the decision was made to instruct county staff to create this plan acknowledged that the decision could create uh, an undue hardship on these farmers. So it'll really just depend on that plan from county staff just how much of a burden it could actually be. And the story continues. Thanks, Luke. Thank you. Luke Runyon reports for KUNC and Harvest Public Media. He talked to us about Boulder County's decision to phase out GMOs on its public lands. And we'll be right back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. When you think of the perfect dessert, what comes to mind? Cookies? Pie? A piece of chocolate? It's always dark chocolate in my case. Your preference depends, apparently, at least in part, on organisms that live in your mouth. We learned this in Beta Test, our series about eye-opening research in Colorado. Scientists at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science are using visitors as guinea pigs to learn more about the sweet tooth. Back in November, I spoke with Nicole Garneau, who is leading this study. Welcome. Thanks so much, Ryan. What exactly are you trying to figure out here? Well, we're really looking at what are the factors that are are causing you to like things that are sweet or not like things that are sweet and your sensitivity to them. And one of the things that we think is going on besides genetics of you is possibly the number and types of bacteria that are in your mouth. Oh, right. It's it's been somewhat established that genes have something to do with this. Oh, absolutely. And you are looking at maybe the remaining influencers. That's correct. Bacteria that live just in my mouth or in my stomach or what? We're looking at the mouth right now is where this study is leading us. Um, and again, we, we know that there's certain bacteria that have to do with health things like dental health as well as um, health measurements like obesity. But no one's ever put together what the factors are that are taste-related and bacterial-related that go to both of those health those with, health pieces. With the idea that if there are bacteria living in my mouth that somehow make me crave sweets, that could affect my waistline, that could affect my propensity for diabetes, and the list goes on. That's correct. If these bacteria are modifying the way that you not only taste sweets, so your sensitivity to it, but also your liking of it, then they're going to allow you to, or kind of force you to, eat more of the things that they need for their nutrients, which can have a detrimental effect on your health. (laughs) I see. So it's your diet and the bacteria's diet. But I guess what I don't understand is how does an organism that is not me influence my nervous system? In other words, taste is part of our nervous system. Am I I right about that? Part of the nervous system turns to your senses. And yes, absolutely. So neuroscience, for sure. Right. So how could something on the outside of my body influence my own body's perception of something. And that's what we're only starting to figure out. So the Human Microbe Project, of which our project and many other people's research across the country and the world are looking into, is we're trying to figure out what are these microbes doing and how and and why are they affecting 
how our bodies work. Um, so those those questions remain unanswered at this point. Yeah, it's really fascinating. And let's not declare all bacteria bad either. Because Correct. We are learning more and more that they are good influencers. So absolutely. So just like what we're seeing in um, the Human Gut Project, where they're looking at the bacteria in the gut and how that affects how your body works, for us in in the mouth. It's really symbiosis, we think. And symbiosis can be good-good for both players, good-neutral for one and then the other, and good-bad. And some bacteria fall into each of those categories. Yeah, at which point it becomes a parasite, though, right? Uh, right. When, when the relationship ain't when, so sweet. When it's not so sweet for the, the host, it's, it's definitely a parasite. So how do visitors to the museum fit into the research? What is it that you need from Yeah, them? so this is what makes us really unique. So beyond the fact that no one's really looked at this question of taste and bacteria and how it affects health, um, our study is open to the public 364 days a year, which is when the museum is open, by crowdsourcing. So we want guests of the museum to be able to come into our lab for 30 minutes and essentially they learn a lot of cool stuff about themselves and we get really great population data. So um, scientists at academic institutions drool over the numbers we get. And it's just based on the sheer number of people that come to the museum. And what do you do with them? So in that 30 minutes, you um, we ask them lots of questions about their diet, um, as well as do some body composition analysis. But the main thing is that we're going to give them sweet things to taste, and they're going to rate them. And then they're going to do some swabs in their mouth, both for us to look at their DNA and for us to look at the DNA of the, the bacteria that are in there. Are there privacy concerns here? It's all confidential, and we don't actually have a key that that you get a basically a, a random number, and that number is not associated with your name. So that was something that was very important to us to make sure that we, we kept that confidential. And so then if you gave me something, uh, how, how do I rate sweet in a vacuum? In other words, you give me something, what would you give me, chocolate? or? No, unfortunately, that's what people ask. They're like, oh, am I going to get ice cream or chocolate or something? I mean, at least something good for my yes. half hour of time. It is, in order to keep it very um, standard across all the people that are coming in, it's sweetened water. Um, and it's different samples with different concentrations uh, for people to rate in terms of their intensity. How sweet is this to you? And also, how much do you like it? And so uh, if you have one bottle of sweetened water and 10 people, there might be 10 perceptions of its sweetness. Correct. And what we really take advantage of it is the number of people that come in. So we're not looking at just individual. We're really looking at the population data and what the trends look like as a whole. So that's what makes it a little bit um, easier for us to understand uh, the research that we're, we're doing. Are you seeing any patterns so far? That is to say, could you connect people who are maybe obese with having... Um, a, I guess it would be what? A really weak, sweet? No, a, a strong attraction to sweet, but maybe they need a lot of it to we, get the we hit. We don't know. So there's conflicting research on both sides. Okay. Uh, people who taste sweet more or less have both also been shown to have an obesity propensity. And then people who have particular microbiome species have been shown to relate it to obesity. But conflicting data on both sides we're going to put that together and answer that question. I see. Marry the that, We're going to marry that. Exactly. That data. All right. Um, this is really part of a larger trend in science, it seems to me, um, where – and people don't always have to be in a place. They don't have to be in a museum or a lab to contribute. I remember a project, CU Boulder, in which people were sending – how do I put this delicately? You know, poop samples. Absolutely. You know, yes, to, the American to, Gut Project. <laughs> the Gut Project, right, to learn about the bacteria in your system. Yeah. Um, so do you think that this points to something larger in science at the moment? I do, particularly in health science. So community-based research is really a way for us to not only educate and, and be play a role in what people understand about their health, but also to get big data that you couldn't get otherwise. And we're doing it in two ways. We've got the participants who come to the museum who can be a part of our study. And then we have a dedicated group of volunteers who we call citizen scientists who are actually doing the data collection, 
They're doing DNA analysis. I mean, they're they're rocking it on the actual science side as well. So there's two ways to participate as a, a community member. And you obviously get families that come into the museums. You can look at particular family units as opposed to just random individuals. Yes, we, we want families to come in for sure. Okay, we have about 30 seconds. You have done several other experiments, including the super taster theory. Yeah, that was one of our first studies. We set out to replicate data in the field around super taster. And Which is? Around that a super taster is someone who tastes everything more strongly than other people. Uh-huh. And we, we ended up debunking that. Uh, which was not our intention, but you, you debunked data is data. That what there are people who exist like this. It's just a range of sensitivities. There's no categorical groups that you can fall into. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Very cool. And that gave us the chutzpah to ask more and harder questions and get the community involved in really cool research. <laughs> nice use of the word chutzpah. Okay. <laughs> Nicole, thanks so much for being with us. Great. Thanks so much, Ryan. Nicole Garneau leads the Health Sciences Department at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. It was sweet of you to join us. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from Colorado Public Radio. 